Welcome to the Pre-Health Pod. My name is Lexi, and we're a podcast by students for students who've been through undergrad, are going through the application process, and are here to meet you wherever you are. Pre-PA, pre-med, and pre-health all are welcome. Today is a special episode that we recorded live at our fourth annual National Pre-Health Conference. Let's go ahead and transition to this episode for an enriching Q&A with Director of Medical School Admissions, Mr. Mark Priolo, and get inside the mind of someone who reads medical school applications. All right, well, I'll do a quick introduction, and if Mr. Mark Priolo and Sarah could share their video whenever they're ready. Um, But Mark Priolo is the Director of Admissions and Recruitment for the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and has served in that role since November 2018. He moved to Phoenix in 2017, and prior to joining U Arizona, he was the liaison for new student enrollment initiatives at Arizona State University, where he earned his master's degree in communication. Mark relocated to Phoenix from the Bay Area, where he previously served as the director of transfer admission, and then the director of international admission at the University of San Francisco. He began his career over 20 years ago as an assistant director in Boston, where he earned a bachelor's degree in communication studies. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So I know this is a very different session um, than our usual sessions where we do a presentation and QA, because we're going to do a live podcast session. As you know, Sarah and I are co-hosts of the Pre-Health Pod, a very new podcast hosted by the National Pre-Health Community to answer all of your questions, demystify the process and help you feel more confident in your career path to being a doctor, a PA, or any other healthcare-related field. During this entire session today, we're going to run a Q&A with Mr. Mark Priolo, but we're also going to do mainly conversation style, like it is a regular podcast session that we do every Monday. If someone could put in the chat as well, we are found at prehealthpod.com and available wherever you find your podcasts. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Sarah. Hi, guys. Um, I am a pre-PA student. I've been working with NPHC for the last few years. Um, I'm NPHC's COO, but my favorite part is being the co-host of this podcast. I'm really excited to speak with Mark today and learn all about the medical school admissions process. He is coming to us from one of my biased favorite medical schools. <laughs> Born and raised in Arizona, I have a special place in my heart for University of Arizona Medical School. So I'm really excited to learn more from him today. Awesome. Yeah. So I'd love to start with my first question for you, Mark. Um, let's see. How do med schools feel about applicants who have retaking classes they did poorly in for the first time? Is there a stigma around students who have retaken classes? Uh, That's a great question. There's not typically a stigma around that. Uh, What we're looking for is really that if a student does have to retake a class, uh, that they uh, are able to get a great score kind of in that next retake, as opposed to somebody that may need to retake a course a few times. Um, When we see a student have to retake a course multiple times, we might have some hesitation about whether or not the student uh, is actually uh, able to kind of grasp the material. Otherwise, you know, just a retake, you know, for a course here or there is fine. 
That's okay. good to know. <laughs> I know a lot of students will appreciate that answer. Um, I'm wondering though, what are the top like three things that you're looking for in a candidate when you're looking through all of these admissions applications every year? Yeah, so the three things that we're looking for specifically at College of Medicine Phoenix is um, academic preparedness, commitment to medicine, and a fit for our school or community. Um, so, you know, kind of just as a general um, rule, there's going to be some different things that medical schools are looking for uh, in terms of, you know, their overall holistic review process. But a lot of the schools are going to focus on a lot of these kind of three areas right here. Uh, so if we think about it, obviously, we want to know that a student's academically ready for the program. So we're going to look at your grades, your MCAT score, maybe prerequisite courses for the particular program that you're interested in. Um, that's going to, you know, kind of go into a little bit deeper path of, you know, are we looking at grade trends? Did the student have a rocky start, but then, you know, have an upward trend in their academic studies? Did they do a grad program? All these kind of things factor into our uh, review of academic preparedness. Uh, that second part is the uh, commitment to medicine. Um, obviously, that's a big part of what we're looking for. We really want to understand that the student knows what they're getting themselves into. So do they have those experiences? Have they done those things that really gives them an understanding of what that patient contact is like, what the general profession is, all of the things that they're going to need going as a professional into the field? Um, and then finally, that fit for the school or community. And this is the one that I think a lot of students might uh, tend to overlook. Uh, we really want to understand that a student made the conscious choice to apply to our program. They really know what type of uh, curriculum that we provide, the type of activities that we have on campus, or the different uh, dual degree programs, academic opportunities that we offer. So uh, really the students that's done the research and that you know we understand will fit into our uh, community. Uh, and that could come from, you know, again, just an understanding of the, you know, larger city that we're in to something more specific, like, uh, you know, do you have the attributes that a lot of the students that are already in our community exemplify and really that you would fit in terms of, you know, the other students that are already here? Yeah, definitely great answer. And I can definitely relate to that. Um, I do want to jump into another question. How many clinical hours, volunteering hours should you have before you apply, if at all? Yeah, uh, another fantastic question. It's a tough one to answer because it's going to be different depending on any program that you're looking at. Um, and, and that's something that I'm probably going to say a lot during this session. Uh, you know, for College of Medicine Phoenix, again, what we're looking at is just at least some experience to patient exposure. We don't necessarily put a certain hour limit on it. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. One, uh, students are coming from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, they may not have the opportunity to do uh, you know, extensive amounts of clinical opportunities because maybe they're working part-time to help fund for their education, or maybe they have family obligations or and they're only going to school part-time. Things like that really um, factor into our decision when we're doing that holistic review on whether or not we're gonna you know, say 200 hours is something that's gonna be considerable or whether somebody that has five or 600 hours of clinical experience might be um, a, a little bit more, uh, you know, impressive in terms of their resume and background. So, you know, that's where we really start looking at that individual student's experience uh, that, you know, really helps us within the context of the holistic review process. I'm going to tie this into PA school like I always do. Um, 
It, I know anytime I can find a way to tie anything to PA school, I will, because I want more PA students out there. So mm-hmm. for PA school, when you're looking at clinical hours, every program is different, obviously, but the bare minimum that you'll see across the board is at least a hundred hours of patient care experience. And they go as far as to specify this even further to saying like, this is like being a CNA or an EMT, or in some cases, a medical assistant. This isn't scribing. This isn't shadowing. This isn't volunteering. So for PA school, the requirements are even more specific and even harder to get. So if you're really interested in PA school, you got to start that process early because you're going to have to go get those certificates to be a CNA or an MA or an EMT. But I'm going to jump into our next question. Um, I love this question because I feel like I struggled with this during my undergrad. Um, Someone's asking about short clinical work experiences, like just doing a clinical experience for the summer. Is that going to look bad on my resume? Is that going to look bad in my application? Because I know this is something that I struggled with during my undergrad. I was an MA at a clinic for just the summer. And when I left in August, I was kind of torn up about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this looks terrible on my work history. I only worked here for four months. So what do you think? Does this look bad on my applications? That's a great question. That is a great question. And it really goes back to that idea of context. Uh, So we really, you know, we're not just going to look at the face value of what's on the application. We're really going to try and read a little bit deeper into it, um, even if you don't provide us that additional context. So if you're talking about, you know, maybe somebody is in at a university, they're taking classes, they go home for the summer. You don't live in the same place. And maybe you do a clinical internship while you're there for the summer. We understand that you can't continue doing that when you go back to school because now you're, you know, 100, 200 miles away. So we're going to look at things like that. Um, If we can't make those kind of necessary leaps, or if you don't think that enough context is provided in in terms of your application, give it to us. You know, let us know why it was such a short experience. Hey, this clinic only lets students come in here for 20 hours a week and, you know, a maximum of four weeks because, you know, they have a lot of students that are interested and want to rotate through. Uh, You know, we can't obviously guess at things like that. So if you know that there's that additional uh, kind of information that you can provide that'll help us you know, make some of those, get some of that understanding about why that was such a short experience, that's fine. Otherwise, you know, it really isn't the length of time that you've spent in that particular activity. It's really what you got out of it. So it's really going to be how about you talked about it uh, and that description that you provide in your application um, and, and, you know, really what comes out of it from your own personal experience and how you can talk about it. You know, I had this exact same experience happen to me. Um, when I started college, I got my foot in the door of my first clinical experience volunteering in a hospital. It's at Banner Desert in Tempe, if you know where that is. Um, and, you know, I was only there for a couple months. I went to study abroad and I planned on returning to volunteer because they wouldn't let you basically, their hospital had weird requirements, but they wouldn't let you put on applications or say you could be their contact as long as you had a minimum of a hundred hours. And I had like 60 at the time. So I went abroad, then COVID happened and sent me home and they closed the volunteer program. And that was such a confusing situation for me. Cause I was like, Oh, well now I feel like I can't talk about this experience because I didn't meet their minimum requirement. But in that case, what I did is I explained it in my application. I said, this is what happened. You know, this really introduced me to the world of healthcare. And it got me a job as a medical scribe because I knew a little bit about working in a hospital. And I loved this experience so much and talking to patients every single day. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's a fantastic way to approach it. Sorry. No, yeah. you're good. I was just agreeing too. And honestly, I was thinking while you were talking, Mark, you kind of touched on the importance of being able to talk so highly about something and how to show that it was important to you. And that's something that I feel like we as pre-health students overlook a lot. It's so important that you're doing things that you love so that someday when you're sitting in an interview, you can rave about that thing and you can go on and on about how great it was and how it made you a better person or how it taught you this really cool thing. And they will be able to tell when it's something you didn't really enjoy. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I want to ask this question. It's awesome. Does it look better to diversify experiences or stick with something long-term? I think I know the answer to this already, but what do you think? Well, we do like to see commitment. So it obviously is helpful to, you know, show kind of a sustained uh, experience in a given area. So whether that's, you know, your clinical experience or whether you're, you know, heavily involved in a research project, that's certainly helpful. Um, But also, you know, what we're looking for, and again, this might be specific to College of Medicine Phoenix, uh, that we have a lot of academic opportunities. So we have, you know, dual degree opportunities and certificates of distinction, which are basically minors. We have, you know, student interest groups, we have advocacy programs, we have ways for students to get involved in curriculum committee and admissions committee and, and, you know, kind of develop the future of our community. So we really are looking for students with a variety of interests. So I I, I hate to put it this way, but we're kind of looking for both. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're looking for kind of a different, yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's so tough. Um, Cause there are like probably only a couple a few, like maybe three or four things that I did for years. And then a lot of other things that I did short term, but I think, you know, show your passion in your application, stick with what's interesting. It's okay to start off with doing several different things. I did the same thing freshman or sophomore year. And once you really find your niche, stick with it and continue with it for like ever, (laughs) like however long until you get into medical school. Absolutely. I completely agree with you, Lexi and Mark as well. Like you got to stick with what you love, but don't be afraid to branch out and do other things too. I, by branching out, I found out that I don't like research. I don't enjoy it. I don't want to do it. I will not be pursuing it, but if I hadn't branched out, I wouldn't know that. And I could have wasted a lot of time down the line trying to get into research. And um, I'm, yeah. I'm just going to interrupt real quick. My apologies. But yeah, no. uh, that's a great perspective to have. You know that now that you've done that, that's not something you like. And so if that's a question that comes up in your interview and they say, hey, you haven't done a lot of research and that's something that we're kind of, you know, we were looking at and wondering about. And then you can tell them, hey, you know, I tried it. It's not really the way that I, you know, kind of learn things and, and that, you know, it's not the type of education that I was interested in. And that's that's certainly a valid way to approach that, that in a, you know, whether it's in your application in an essay or, or within the interview experience. So that's great. Thanks. That's good to hear. <laughs> Let's see. It looks like we have a question from Joanne and she wants to know how, wait, did we already answer this one? How medical schools feel about applicants who have retaken classes. We answered this one, didn't we, Lexi? Yeah, we did. Let's do a different one. Yeah. Um, oh, I like this one. What can you recommend for incoming or accepted medical students when dealing with imposter syndrome and fear of not doing well in certain class? Um, I think this also applies to pre-meds too. <laughs> 
Wow. Yeah, that's a tough question. Uh, I think the best thing I can say is just to realize that everybody else is in your same situation. It, you know, everybody else has that worry that they're not going to be good enough, that they're not going to have done enough. But if you're talking about you're an entering medical school student, hey, guess what? You're already at that level where you've done what you need to do. Somebody that school has said, we want you here. We think you're going to be a great future physician and we'll help mold you into that future physician. So, uh, you know, I know it's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough mental game to play, but you just have to, now that you're there, just understand you're there for a reason. You earn that spot. Um, and, and that'll give you that confidence to kind of go through with it. And as a pre-med student, it's, it's almost the same thing. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that if you, you know, cause there's some students that might not get accepted to medical school, that's okay too, because, you know, there's a reapplication process for College of Medicine Phoenix, 50% of our incoming class this year were reapplicants. So, you know, think about that resilience. Think about that there's not that one path to medical school. You don't have to follow a particular path to get to where you want to be. Um, and again, you know, it's just that that mental game you're going to play with yourself. Just give yourself that confidence. Know yeah. that everybody else is thinking the same things you are. Uh, but, you know, again, you've earned that spot. You're there for a reason. So, yeah, just go with it. Absolutely. I love yeah. that answer. Even as a pre-med, like even if you don't get into medical school in the first try, you are so unique and you are a hard worker. You took the MCAT. Like you went through all of these classes in undergrad, all of these clinical experience. You worked hours on end. Like you have what it takes to be a physician if you have that confidence and that, you know, mentality. So don't let it get you down. Keep going. And that resilience is just super key. And I love that you mentioned that. Um, yeah. Sarah, you want to ask? Can I add on that? Oh, yeah, please. (laughs) Yeah. I just wanted to add, um, two things. One, I am applying to PA school right now. I've already been rejected from one of the PA schools I've applied to. And I'll be honest with you guys, that rejection letter hits hard. It hurts. It's it's painful and it sucks. But when you look at the end of the tunnel, all I can see in my future is being a PA. That's the only thing I want to do with my life. That's the only thing that's going to make me happy. So at the end of the day, if I get rejected from all of the schools I applied to this round, I will be reapplying next year. That doesn't make me a bad candidate. That doesn't make me a bad student. That doesn't make me a less than anything. I'm just going to keep applying until I get in because this is all I want to do. So if you have the confidence in that and this is all you want, you can't let your own fears and your own insecurities stand in the way of that. You can't give up on something like that. That's too important and that's going to matter too much to your life as a whole. I also wanted to kind of plug the podcast real quick. We are filming an episode here soon with Sarah Kubrick, who is the millennial therapist. You can find her on Instagram, um, all about imposter syndrome. So if you still have questions about imposter syndrome, definitely keep an eye out for that episode because I know it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm related to that. We actually have an episode with MD, PhD, Penn student on staying motivated. So if you need some inspiration, and also MD PhD student Andres Diaz from University of Arizona Tucson on becoming healers. You know, really that introspection and self-reflection on looking at the bigger picture of your life and getting into those nitty-gritty details. 
of who you are. So listen to those episodes for inspiration. Not to toot our own horn, but sorry. (laughs) We've got some great episodes, so you should check them out. But I'll jump into my next question for you, Mark. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us about a candidate Uh, a candidate that is very memorable to you and what it was that was making them so unique? Yeah, this is such a great question. And and you know what? It's another tough one. Uh, And the reason for that is there's there's so many great candidates each year uh, that it's so hard to focus on just one. Um, And, you know, again, for privacy reasons, I think I won't, you know, kind of go into specific detail about any one individual candidate. But I think, you know, the way I'll talk about it is I'll talk about groups of candidates that, you know, kind of they fit into different molds into why they're memorable. Um, One is, you know, there's the students that have overcome some tremendous obstacles in their lives. Um, I think that's just in terms of their own personal journey, their own personal story. There's those students that are just incredibly memorable each year. It's a very small percentage of students, so don't think you have to overcome, you know, unsurmountable odds in order to get accepted to any of the programs that you're applying to. Uh, But that's one of the groups that that typically stands out. Uh, The other uh, kind of group of students that we're looking at that that we remember each year, the students that we think after reading that application, how do they do it all? I mean, how are they so involved in all these things? How are they still keeping up with their academics? How do they where do they find time to sleep, to eat? Um, you know, that's the, you know, another kind of category of the, the students that typically impress. Um, there's the other the group of candidates. This is the one that's personally my favorite. They're the perfect fit, as I call them. Uh, and there's those are the ones that really understand your school, really understand your community and shine in the application with their understanding of how they would fit in and contribute to your, uh, you know, campus culture. Uh, And so those are the ones that, you know, really, again, uh, they take their time on their secondary application. They've really done their research on your school, your website. Uh, You know, that's that that kind of perfect fit group. Um, And then there's, you know, again, the ones that are memorable because they have a unique way of presenting themselves. That's either in their response to their, uh, you know, personal statement or in their secondary essays. Um, I will get a little bit more specific on this one. I, I always hesitate to get specific because then we see thousands of applications that try the same sort of tactic. But one student answered a secondary question with a poem. Uh, and it was just that one of those things where I just immediately remember that every year. I'm like, oh, I remember I had, the, you know, a student answer in pro and, you know, poetry to this one. Wow. That's awesome. That is definitely a way to stand out and be unique. Yeah. I'm but don't everyone go do that. <laughs> Some of you aren't good at poetry and that's okay to admit. I know I'm in the middle of secondaries right now. I'm like, oh my God, I can't do a poetry. <laughs> I can't do a poem. But that is so interesting. I can see why that's memorable. It's just like takes you ajar. <laughs> um, I do really like this question. It's pretty interesting for those taking gap years. Would medical schools prefer research experience or clinical experience or during a gap year? And I know it says in addition to undergraduate research. Oh, I know what they mean. So like research experience outside of undergrad or clinical experience during gap year. Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And you know what? It depends on what your overall application or what your overall activity background already looks like. Um, and, and, you know, most importantly, what your preference is. <laughs> I know this is something that, you know, is, is, is challenging for a lot of students. You want to do what the schools will think is impressive, but really yeah. what we think is impressive is what's really important to you. Yeah. So if you have an opportunity to do a research project and it's something you're super excited about, 
um, you know, and you can explain why you did that over getting more clinical experience, that's that's going to be fine. What we really want to look for is you for you to justify the choice that you made. Um, so a couple of things come into that. One, that you're able to do a little bit of self-reflection and say, okay, why did I choose this? Did I choose this because I think it's what you want me to do? Did I choose this because I really need or think I want to get more experience in this particular area and I think it'll help me prepare for medical school? Or am I doing this because it's something that I, it's the opportunity that really stands out and I want to do this. This is my passion. So, um, you know, it really doesn't matter uh, unless there's, you're in the situation where you don't have any clinical experience that I would say, yes, then go ahead, definitely focus on the clinical experience as opposed to research. Um, other than that, really, it's up to you and, and what you're really more interested in, in focusing on. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer. I did like three years of research in undergrad and about a year and a half of being a scribe in addition to like half a year of volunteering in a healthcare clinic. And, you know, now I'm in a marketing position <laughs> and it's something that's really giving me some work experience and also allowing me to like actually create some savings and maybe invest, <laughs> you know, get some of that like real life experience instead of going straight through college. So um, if you, I highly recommend if you've um, stick to something you're really passionate about, like for me, I love event planning. I love marketing and it doesn't have to be exactly that. But if you love your clinical position, you're really interested in your research project. I love all of the points that he mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, we have so many questions, you guys, this is crazy. So definitely go upvote questions you really want answered because we are going to run out of time very quickly. So I'm going to jump to our next one. I really like this question because it's something that I feel like I wonder a lot too. Do medical schools view applicants that come from, they use the word elite, but I'm going to use the word Ivy. So do you view applicants that come from Ivy undergraduate colleges programs, or I guess elite programs in a particular way, or is that something you're not even looking at anymore? You know what? Um, I would say in general, it depends on the person that's looking at your application. When we're talking about an admissions committee, it's not necessarily one individual that's reviewing that application in most cases. It's going to be, in our situation, 22 individual people that are going to look over that application. And it so maybe depends on their background uh, on whether or not that they'll value that um, as sort of a, a you know an, a, a bonus or you know whether they'll just kind of gloss over and say, okay, yeah, they did the degree. They you know meet the minimum requirements and they're academically uh, competitive. I would say for the most part, you know, the academic review is based solely on do you meet the, the GPA, the MCAT requirements. There is some sort of, I would say, internalized bias that comes into that. Like somebody might review an application. And I think we all do this. We think we hear those Ivy League school names and we're like, oh, that's pretty impressive. But we actually for our process gives um, our committee and our uh, evaluators at the earlier stages an unconscious bias uh, review training. And so we have them think about, are you, you know, just making a general assumption of what it means for a student to graduate from that institution? Um, or do you have some more knowledge about the particular education that's provided there? And, and can you make 
a more educated decision based on your knowledge of that institution. So, you know, we're going to try and give individuals the tools to make sure that they're not just automatically giving students a bonus for that, if that makes sense. Um, but, you know, otherwise, it doesn't matter. We, you know, when we talk about where the students can fulfill our requirements, it could be an Ivy League school, it could be a community college. We don't want to discourage anybody from thinking that they're going to be a competitive applicant just because they might have gone to a different institution. That's good to hear. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, there's this question that has nine upvotes. It's like the most we've ever gotten. <laughs> Where is it? Um, I think I'm looking at it right now. Is it about the gap year? Yeah. Yeah. Does it look bad on a gap year if you just travel? You just take a year and you're traveling. Is that a bad gap year? I never want to say no. However, <laughs> um, again, it's going to depend on how you dis to explain why you just traveled during that time. Um, is it because you've done all of the activities you, you think are going to prepare you for medical school? And this is more of a, you know, kind of exploratory, get to know a little bit more about, you know, different cultures and, and really immerse yourselves in different communities. That might be a, a kind of a valid explanation, but you know, we always want to see students continue to find or continue to take part in activities that are going to prepare them for the medical school experience. And so if it's just travel for travel's sake, you want to get out and, you know, just enjoy yourself for a year before medical school, that might not be the best way to describe or to, to, to kind of position yourself in the review process. Absolutely. And honestly, it makes me think of like, don't tell us about your trip to Budapest. We don't want to know what happened in Budapest. It stays in Budapest. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I mean, I did travel a bit during my gap year, but I didn't travel for two years. <laughs> you know, I just like just a little bit that I had the opportunity to that I probably wouldn't be able to in medical school. So it's okay to travel, but um, make sure you're also doing something outside of that too. I'd love to ask the next question. Um, which activities should we prioritize during undergrad that can't be done or are harder to do during gap years? That question's hard. That is a difficult question. Um, I would say that the toughest thing and that I've heard students say is it's always tough to get research when you're not in an academic institution already. You have a little bit more of the connections in terms of the faculty and the, you know, different postings and emails that might go out about, uh, you know, on-campus activities. So that's probably the one if you are interested in research or are thinking about research as a possible, you know, being a physician scientist, uh, you know, that's going to be the one I would say focus on and make sure you get some of that. It, it, it is going to be a little bit tougher because once you get into that gap year situation, you're doing a lot of cold calling, cold emailing. Uh, to try and find those opportunities. And that's not always the easiest. I completely agree with you. It is hard now that I'm not affiliated with ASU because I guess I misspoke earlier. I learned I liked psychology research. Now that I'm not affiliated with ASU, it would be nearly impossible for me to find a way to get in a psychology research lab. So if that's something you're passionate about or you really want to explore, definitely try that out during undergrad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. Okay, so there's the question about majoring and minoring in 
multiple areas, like making that stand out as an applicant. But I kind of want to take this in a little different direction as to like, do I need to double major? Do I need to do a minor? Are these things that are important or can I just get my undergraduate degree, get my BS and get good grades? Yeah, so uh, I did definitely say it's not necessary. Um, when we talk about the admissions process, we, we even say the major, not that it doesn't matter, but it, it, there, we don't, we're not looking for a specific uh, academic program or combination of programs. It certainly will come into that, are you academically prepared kind of discussion if a student has, you know, kind of a double minor or a double major, that's, a, hey, that student took on a lot and hey, they're still getting good grades. Uh, but beyond that, uh, no, you know, I wouldn't say do it just to make yourself more competitive. It doesn't, it's not going to be the kind of boost that, you know, you might assume it would be. Um, but again, if it's something that, you know, you're interested in these multiple areas and you want to show that, you know, you're more than just, you know, your science background. And so maybe you did a biology major and you're a theater minor um, or you're a theater major and you did, you know, just the pre-med as a minor and, and you just did the prerequisite coursework, uh, by all means, go for it. That's, uh, you know, certainly that diversity that we're looking for in terms of uh, a student's interest and background. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, this question is very popular. And so I want to make sure we get it asked. How should an applicant with a high GPA but a low MCAT score spend their gap year if they have fulfilled all of their extracurriculars and are retaking the MCAT? And to add on to that, you know, retaking the MCAT is a huge feat. And what would you recommend they do in addition to that to like, I guess, make their application more competitive? Yeah, that's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I'll tackle the first part. So what should you do when you, you know, you have the high GPA, low MCAT score, what kind of activities should you involve yourself in? I think the most important part of the discussion is whatever is not going to take away from the time you need to study for, to retake the MCAT. All right. So whether that's, you know, the activity, it could be community volunteering, whether it's, uh, you know, getting involved uh, at, uh, you know, a particular group or organization or um, part-time work, or if it's, you know, just a, you know, a basic shadowing experience that's only maybe a couple hours a week. Um, think about things like that. But again, your focus and what you want to do to improve your application, it seems like in your situation would be to raise your MCAT score. So don't do anything that's going to take away from that goal and give us the context of, hey, you know, we, you know, if it is, you only did a couple of hours of volunteering every week during that time. I only did it because I was focusing on that MCAT score. And hey, I, look, I raised my score five points, 10 points, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I did the same thing during my gap year. I didn't work full-time. I was studying for the MCAT and I just took a, on a part-time job. Um, I worked with just one of the physicians I used to scribe for and I just volunteered a little bit. Um, but a lot of my time was dedicated to the MCAT because it was very important to me. And I think that's okay. And you can be honest about that. You know, the test is a, is huge and it's, it's, extremely hard. Um, but you know, you got this and just do whatever you can to like, give yourself the space and to like the wellness as well. Don't forget to do some cool hobbies or something that you enjoy while you're doing it. But yeah, it's really tough, you guys, but you got this. Yeah. You got this. We believe in you. Um, Oh my gosh, we're running out of time so quick. Okay. This question has eight upvotes on it. So we're going to ask it. Um, 
So this person is expressing some concern about how competitive the application process is, and they're wanting to know some red flags that they should avoid putting on their application versus some green flags that they should try to include. I feel like we've covered a lot of the green flags, but what do you think some of the red flags are? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, the biggest red flag for me is always the student that is you know, and this is it because the application process is competitive. This is something that you naturally have to do, apply to a lot of schools, but it's the individual that clearly is applying just to add another school to that application list. When you get to that secondary application, there's no connection with, you know, the community that we're in, the patient population we serve, an understanding of the academic program, the type of institution we are, where we're located, all these different things that, you know, are going to go into the decision of where you want to attend medical school. Um, you know, that is the probably the biggest red flag that I see every year. Uh, the students that kind of just, you know, I'm going to get this secondary and just to get it in, just to give myself another opportunity to possibly get an interview. Absolutely. I think that's definitely a common thing that students do. We're just scrambling to add schools into our application list. We're trying to get our name out there more, but we have to kind of hold ourselves back from that. Slow down. Like, why are you applying here? Make sure you've got a good reason for it. I know I really wanted to do that with PA apps because it's a lot less expensive. So I was like, oh, I could apply to way more schools. It's a bad idea. There's too many. I don't love them all. I can't lie about it. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I want to search for, I think, just a couple more questions before we head off to our next session. Um, What about this one? What are your thoughts on taking prereq classes at a community college? Ooh, yeah. We are totally okay with that. Um, I did College of Medicine, (laughs) yeah. College of Medicine Phoenix, we're really just looking for you to complete the content requirement. Um, And so whether that's at a community college or whether that's at a four-year university, um, you know, you've done the work. Uh, What I will say is that we do have, and this is other schools may have this requirement too, is they they call an upper division. Uh, You might need an upper division science course or an upper division biochemistry, you know, those types of things that naturally community colleges don't offer upper division classes. So think about that when you're considering which prerequisites to complete there. But yeah, for us, it's it's totally fine. Again, what we're looking at is, you know, some students, you know, financially may not be able to take a course at a four-year university or they don't have the, you know, it's just a summer class. And so you're home from university and there's a, you know, a place close by that you can, you know, do that course. Uh, that's that's really, we're just, again, going to look at the content and not really the, the, the location. Yeah, that's really good to know because I um, took a couple community college courses. One I just finished like yesterday and I'm like, how do I upload this to my med school app? But we're working on it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and I took it um, as prerequisites for some of the state schools that I applied to. Hot tip, you know, if you are in a different state, obviously, than Arizona, if you want to figure out what prerequisites you're required to have, I would start with your state schools. And I know it's daunting to like try to make a school list so early on, just start at your state because you should really apply to all of the state schools available to you when you apply to medical school and just take a look at their website. They have prerequisites available. The, I'm going to follow up with one thing about the, the community college question too, though. I know okay. there are some schools 
specifically, if you decide to take all of your prerequisites at a community college when you're already enrolled at a four-year degree uh, program, there might be some red flags that kind of are thrown up there being like, okay, why is the student just taking all the prereqs at the community college as opposed to the school that they're, you know, completing their degree at. So, you know, be prepared to kind of explain why you're doing that if that's something that's happening. But, you know, one or two courses here is or here or there isn't going to be an, an issue. Yeah, that's a good point. I couldn't fit in those classes I took um, into my schedule. So I took them in my gap years. So it's just yeah. every everybody's journey is different. But thank you so much for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, I think I actually want to end with this question and you know, it's just so important. Clinical experience is so important. Um, what are all the kinds of experiences that you've seen that count as clinical hours for medical school? There's so many different types that we've seen. So, and wow. I'll, I'll give just a, maybe a, a brief list. Uh, you know, there's the typical shadowing and scribing. We've seen, uh, you know, CNAs, we've seen you know, nurses going back to to complete a different degree. We've seen EMTs. We've seen uh, students doing clinical research, and they're involved with clinical trials. We've seen yeah. uh, individuals that have uh, you know uh, shadowed in uh, family practice clinics, or they've you know volunteered in hospitals. Uh, it really runs the gamut because what we're looking at from our perspective again is. Do you have an understanding of the profession and the perspective of specifically that patient physician relationship? So is it that you've taken part in that relationship or even if you've just observed it in the terms of shadowing, we really want you to understand that basic relationship and how that healthcare journey affects both the physician um, and the patient. So yeah, there's a ton of different uh, activities that really fall under that broad umbrella for us. I'm going to quickly add on a sub question to this because it's something that I hear talked about a lot. What are your thoughts about home health experiences, like taking care of a relative or a family member? Does that count as clinical hours? Uh, That is a great question. uh, And it probably depends. So are you a certified home health aide or, you know, what types of kind of care are you giving in that home health situation? I will say in terms of experience, we see that a lot and we value that. And we know when we're looking at our review process, we're like, you know, this is a person that exhibits compassion, that exhibits empathy, that, you know, is a really family oriented, all those kind of positive qualities that you think about when you think about entering uh, the world of medicine. Uh, But really, when we're talking about clinical hours, it depends on, I think, your level of, uh, you know, kind of involvement in the care that you're giving. Um, and, and whether or not that there's kind of an, I don't want to say an official certification behind it because there doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, but, you know, is it just, you know, a kind of typical care and checking in on somebody as opposed to maybe, uh, you know, changing IV fluids or, you know, it's something that's a little bit more uh, direct uh, in terms of the, the medical care that they're receiving? Absolutely. Thank you for answering that. Yeah. It's a great follow-up question. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mr. Mark Priolo, for joining us um, at our National Pre-Health Conference special podcast episode live on the Pre-Health Pod. If you liked what you heard today, we do this every single Monday with healthcare professionals across the globe. This podcast is produced by Ari Rosenthal, Lorelai Edmonds, and Aditi Galante. You can find our podcast on Instagram at Pre-Health Pod and contact us at prehealthpod.com. We have several events coming up, including a research symposium, our next national pre-health conference, and an exclusive event for pre-PAs, all at our website, nationalprehealthconfconf.org. If you liked our podcast, please like, leave a review, and tell one friend. See you next Monday.